Hey everybody, sorry about the late start. We had some major technical issues that we managed to squeeze in at the last second. Um, Breeder Steve will be with us shortly. Um, we just could not get the damn Zoom working this morning. It took us a little while to figure out why. So we got it all rectified, thankfully. There we go. I do apologize for the short delay there in the beginning. Um, yeah, <laughs> we had a heck of a time getting the uh, the stream working. Well, uh, we'll have Breeder Steve connecting with us shortly. Um, uh, any moment. Uh, and uh, just spoken to him right before this. Um, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Hopefully you guys enjoyed yesterday. Um, make sure to go over to ap420.com uh, and sign up with your email uh, for a chance to win a SK403 uh, Grow Nutrients and the um, um, Grow Kit from uh, APMJ Newts and True Aquaponics. Uh, also, check out Marty and I's online class at APM, uh, class, apmjclass.com for a full-length uh, aquaponic uh, commercial class. Um, looks like Steve should be connecting any moment. Make sure we get the new email out. We had to change the Zoom link last minute, so we had some last-minute technical differences. But uh, we managed to, to squeeze it in, I think, because it's about to have a hard tech. <laughs> well, uh, looks like we got it all uh, got it all sorted. Looks like we finally got Steve connected. Uh, he was kind enough to take some time out of his trip to Spain to to speak with us. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, Breeder Steve is the first one to write about aquaponic cannabis. He was the first one to write about it back in uh, late '90s, uh, I believe, was the first time I, I read it. '97 or '98, I think, was the first time I read him posting about aquaponics. And he might actually have some posts that are older than that that I don't know about. So, um, thankfully, we got all the, the kinks ironed out, and uh, we're able to start just uh, two or three minutes late. So, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. Uh, it's been quite quite the morning. We've had about an hour of scrambling trying to get all these technical issues sorted. But uh, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Steve. Better late than never, right? Right. Um, so uh, tell us what about yourself, for those of you that don't know uh, about you, and then uh, a little bit about your work with uh, aquaponics and living soil. I know you're doing all kinds of amazing, wonderful things, bringing those technologies to Columbia, and we'd love to, to learn more. Well, yeah, I guess uh, I started growing probably 89, you know, growing my own and quickly realized I preferred the organic version. <laughs> so I really took that to heart early. And when I moved to Vancouver after university in 94, I set up my first aquaponic cannabis. So that was uh, my first go at it. And back then there wasn't forums or anything anyways to write about it on. <laughs> but it was, uh, oh, you're blinking there, you had the disco? Uh, sorry. Anyways, so I really uh, took to it. I really thought it was phenomenal how clean the flavors came through and the texture of smoke would be very light. And I set up a, a business building what I called bioponic systems, which were kind of a hybrid um, aquaponic and soil system that was based on the first ones I'd set up. And they were really quite simple and I'll get into, you know, without diagrams, I haven't got anything like that ready for you, but I can give you, you know, a rundown of how it works. Um, today I'm in Spain, I'm talking to you from my hotel room in Madrid, and now, you know, throughout the last two years of the pandemic, working from home, I've been, you know, starting up places around Spain and other parts of the world in uh, Thailand and that, but 
in Spain, I'm even getting some of the places to adopt uh, aquaponic approach. So there's some interesting partnerships starting up over here. And it's really uh, a joy to continually be starting new places, right? And I just can't wait to see more and more people doing it. You know, when I set up this little shop outside Vancouver, building aquaponic systems for people, there was really nobody else was using it at the time. So I also made my own organic soil, which was, was a little less scary for a lot of people just they're used to growing in soil, right? But essentially the hybrid system that I would use, I made, I, the first time I ever did it, I had Rubbermaids with tops cut in them and the holes in the tops would either hold a four inch pot or a six inch pot and to try them at various spacings. Of course, it depends on which cultivar you're using and how long you want to veg and that sort of thing. But I had, the very first time I did it, I had soil pots, but I, before I put the soil in them, I put in wicks, which are um, nylon rope, but the absorbent nylon rope, not the kind that floats and repels water because that won't suck up any water. So you have absorbent nylon rope and you'd have the four tails. If you put two ropes through, pull it through the four holes, so it comes down and the roots would, you know, the plant would start great because it's in a rich little soil pot and before the roots even hit that wet rope at the bottom, but the wet rope give it that passive, you know, capillary action. And as soon as the roots hit those ropes, they went down them and they were like four carrots. It was like you had four tap roots coming out that got so thick and they would just be a huge nest of roots because they would grow down into this deep, you know, open chamber where there was aquaponic water going in as a mist. And even the first times I did it, I just put like a pump with half inch poly hose going up or two and just put some slits in it. I didn't even use emitters or anything. I just put some slits. So when the pump came on every 20 minutes or something, it just it would just spray in there. And I would even line those under the roofs. So they were spraying down under the lids and the roots would grow in those just, they would just take over all the available space. So when I went to build, you know, the next generation of them, I wasn't using Rubbermaids. I made table frames out of PVC pipes and then I used pond liner. And at the shallow end of a table, like there would be a pond liner hanging under this frame. And at the shallow end, maybe be about two feet deep, running down to about three feet deep where I would have a drain. And that drain, I would even put a little piece of tube sticking up so that there was always a couple centimeters or a couple inches of water at the bottom so that those wicks, I always kept the wicks in the systems because they just gave that redundancy factor that even if the pumps and the power went out or something, you would have wicks in a puddle of water at the bottom. So you had that redundancy built in that there could always passively irrigate. And that saved lots of plants, I'm sure. The, uh, the tabletops were, you know, white, white plastic of some sort. I can't think of what it was exactly, but it was a hard white plastic. And then I would cover that with black and white plastic with the white reflecting up, but the black keeping that root chamber pitch black and dark. And by then I wasn't using the regular soil pots. I was using mesh pots that were predominantly full of hydroton and then a spoonful of worm castings on top. And uh, through flowering, I would maybe put a spoonful of this special blend I was making, which was kind of a dry mix, organic blend of different meals and that sort of thing, you know. Um, the, the veg area of the garden would run off the same water as the flowering tables. And I called the veg areas the mother marsh. And they would basically all the water that drained out of the flowering tables would have to run through the mother marsh, which would be, you know, large Rubbermaids with three gallon mesh pots poking through the roof and mothers would grow out of those. And they could be in a separate room, of course, for different lighting regimen, but those would be off the ground, A, to keep them off the cold floor, but B, so that when I had the four mother pots in line, the water would drain between them 
They were connected sideways with through holes. On the floor at the end would be another Rubbermaid with no plant in it. And it would have two sump pumps with the float switches. And I would set one float switch a little higher than the other one, another redundancy. And those were the return pumps. So the return pumps would feed the water back to the aquarium and the aquarium had return pipes that were drilled out maybe, you know, two, three centimeters, inch and a half apart. There would be holes drilled out and that went along the top of the aquarium and sprayed water into it. So it was far better at aeration than a bubbler at the bottom of an aquarium, which doesn't do much. When the water churned back in, it churned it with the, it pulls in air as it's, you know, shooting these pressurized jets of water back into the tank. And that system, basically those indoor systems I was building back then in the 90s, they were, the typical household one would run off a 90 gallon aquarium. And it worked out for that system that it, every 20 minutes, there'd be a cycling timer that would take water and it would spray it inside the tables. And that would, be the aeroponic edge of it where it sprayed mist into the chambers and that water would drain out, drain through the mothers and then it would get pumped back to the aquarium. But while it was getting pumped back to the aquarium, I had a little tea on that pipe and that tea went back to the table and ran drippers on the top so that it put drippers over the rocks every time the return pump came on. And so it, and then those dribble down to the roots. So you had the, a top watering drip, spaghetti lines really, and then uh, the misters off the aquarium pump. And the aquarium pump, it took about a quarter of the water down in the tank every time it came on. And I had a float valve set at that level so that every time the water, if there was any evaporation, you'd never know because the float valve would just let in a little bit more water. So it was a constant level system. And it was a miracle like that. The last one I'd set up in Vancouver before I moved to Europe, it had um, run three years without changing the water or draining the water or anything. And it was only because I'd left that it got shut down. I think that would have just run eternally. So it had the float valve would just keep the water at a constant level in the system. And it was just so easy. You know, I'm inherently lazy. So I like to set stuff up that's really easy. I've got a bad back. I don't like lugging soil around and moving pots if I can help it. I'll do a few in the backyard for fun. But, you know, overall, if I can have a system that really is pretty good at maintaining itself, that gives me a lot of joy just to watch it kind of running around like that setting up a new mousetrap game or something. It's, I really had a lot of fun with that. And it was always blowing people's minds to see it. And I'd try and use the most diversity in those tanks that I could. So out of the gravel at the bottom, and this is another good thing to recognize is when you, before you uh, put the gravel in the bottom, you wanna put a through hole in the bottom of the aquarium. And then you have a grid with a screen over that so you're sucking that dirty water from the bottom and springing that into the system. And uh, that's also helping keep some of that gunk out of the bottom because it's always getting pulled through and filtered through the rocks, but then anchored in the rocks, you would have aquatic plants that grew from the bottom and their roots would kind of hold the gravel in and also filter water. Some of those aquatic plants were ones that grew out of the aquarium and into the 400 watt halide that was above it. And in some places where I'd set them up, we put the aquarium right in a window so they never even had a light over it. They would, um, the sunlight, most people wouldn't put an aquarium in a window because they don't want algae in their aquarium, but I want algae in the aquarium because that's food for the algae eaters. And uh, they go to town. They, you know, if the sun hits water, you have algae. And that is pretty much the basis of life on the planet. You know, it's the first green gunk that grows. And it's not, uh, it's not complicated, really. <laughs> it's pretty easy. I would also make a little flowering boost by putting that dry mix of meals into 
a nylon sock. So it would be like a little log with all kinds of meals in it and put that log in the water and that log would turn into an algae log. And you could see all these algae eaters of different species too. They were all be just sucking on it and huffing and you just see like clouds coming out of their gills. It was really, uh, you know, made the water richer and anything, the more diversity in the tank, the more interesting it was, but I thought the more niches in that little ecosystem, the better it did. I mean, there was floating plants, there was aquatic plants that stayed underwater, there was aquatic plants that grew right out into the light which I actually took a lot of cuttings off and then sold back to aquarium stores. And it was pretty neat to see because those would root in just a few days in the same oasis foam I would root cannabis cuttings in. But the trays would just, they wouldn't have drains on. The trays would just hold water. They were the easiest plants in the world to propagate. Um, there was an eel that lived under the gravel that we really never saw. <laughs> it got pretty big by the time it got shut off. The, there was Oscars that grew really fat and I had uh, the benefit of having an aquarium wholesaler next door who would bring me over bags of 100 guppies or 100 feeder goldfish. We could pour them in and you could pretty much set your watch by it. They would be eaten in no time, like by a minute the Oscars would have tails sticking out of their mouth from all the goldfish and they would just chow down. It was really uh, amusing. Sometimes when people came over to visit and have a look at the system, including, you know, a writer, uh, Annie, that was working for Red Eye Magazine at the time. And she dubbed it Guppy Ponics, but I had her uh, looking at it. Other people that came to see it too were floored, but one time they, they said, well, what do you feed them? And I said, well, let's talk about that. Are you, are you hungry? Because we had some smokes and everybody had some munchies. So I said, there's a dairy queen across the street. Do you like cheeseburgers? And she was like, sure, grab some cheeseburgers. So I'd dash over, grab a bag of cheeseburgers, and I'd come back and I'd have one extra one sitting there. And they say, so you were going to tell me, what do you feed them? And I'd flip a cheeseburger into the aquarium. And the people go, you didn't just do that, you know, the fish are tearing it apart and in 60 seconds there's no trace of a cheeseburger <laughs> and they couldn't believe that I just threw a cheeseburger in the tank, you know, they, they couldn't believe it. It was really, really funny though, just to see the stunned looks on their faces, but they'll eat just about anything and the thing I found with giving them a diverse amount of, you know, let's say real food as opposed to pellets or flakes was um, one of my clients that couldn't be bothered you know, feeding them brine shrimp or bloodworms or all the different sort of natural food you can feed these fish. And so he was using the pellets and flakes, which are cheaper and you can put them in a slow release thing if you're not there every day. So there's some advantage to that, I guess, but he would put too many in and they would be floating around in the water. And you think how horrible fish food smells, whether it's those pellets or flakes, they just smell atrocious when you take the lid off. And his weed would smell like that. So you can, you can go overboard. And that's kind of like the dead fish thing. This fish emulsion, fish emulsion smells terrible in weed when you smell it. And even I remember a guy bringing a bag of weed to my apartment in university one time. And I'd had another friend that used fish emulsion. And I just knew that distinct fishy smell from his grass. And I couldn't stand it really. And, this guy came over, his first time I met him, he was really proud. Before he even opened the bag up, I said, do you grow that with dead fish? <laughs> he said, yes. How did you know? He said, I know that smell, it's horrible. And he said, me and my brother, we catch all the suckers when we're fishing, we just throw the suckers aside and then we dig a hole to plant all our outdoor, we throw a couple suckers in each hole. But there's that distinct dead fish smell, which doesn't work for me. And the water from, a, you know, living water from fish swimming in it and doing what they do, that doesn't have that dead fish smell. You know, it's it's a pond water, really a sweet water system. And it really, I think it brings out the best in all the flavors and aromas in the herb that they really develop properly because of all the, the living organisms, the microorganisms that, you know, make pond life 
and they've had uh, great success even just watering fields from rich pond water. So I, I really use it any chance I can get. I will use living water for irrigation, whether it's a returning system or a one-way system where you're just flooding you know, lines into a field. You don't need much more than that. Like you don't often need anything more than that. I had fantastic results growing plants with nothing but pond water in, in soil that wouldn't be great to support the plants on its own. As soon as you're irrigating it with the pond water, it's like all is forgiven. You know, they just um, they really thrive in it. And you know, you can have a healthy green in the leaves, and that shade of green can depend on the cultivar. But when it's shiny green, you know you're hitting it. Like to me, that's sort of a 10 out of 10 with the health of the plants is when the, the leaves look so vibrant that they really have a brilliance and they're shiny. So that's, you know, that's really a sign to me that you've got a 10 out of 10 in, in plant health of cannabis. And when I had set up my aquaponics store, obviously back then, it was the late 90s at that point, and you could not have cannabis growing in the shop window, right? So you, we had tomatoes and broccoli and all kinds of things. I grew peppers, I grew poppies. I had a, a very diverse garden growing indoors as my display garden. So I did get a lot of chances to try other plants in it. And the traditional wisdom, it seemed at the time, was that aquaponics was great for leafy greens if you were growing lettuce or basil but it was insufficient to grow tomatoes because they say you can't get the nutrition density to grow heavy crops of anything. And that just wasn't true. And I grew tomatoes and I had beefsteak tomatoes in Vancouver in January and they were peeling. They were so fat, they were peeling down the bark from where the branch was holding the tomato. And the cherries, tomatoes, they were so sweet. And it was really something to see. People would come and try the tomatoes. And just, That's the best tasting tomato I've ever had. You know, so, you know, it wasn't just about growing cannabis, but that, of course, was what got me into it. And, and still to this day, I, I really uh, get a kick out of well-done aquaponic cannabis. But it does apply to just about any, just about anything. You know, you can grow all kinds of things that way. And I never tried growing potatoes, but I bet they'd be great. I was visiting a research station on Friday that grows potatoes um, in aeroponics. And they're at a potato breeding center with a huge gene bank. And they love, you know, the cleanliness of being able to just take those little seed potatoes off the roots. And, and I said, we got to put some cannabis in here <laughs> and we got to try it with this hybrid aquaponics system. We'll see how that goes for you because I, I got them a little more inspired to try it because they had sort of an organic section where they were growing the soil and then they had their hydroponics slash aeroponics area. And I said, you know, you can combine the two and they're just, you know. And so I really love sort of spreading that message. And I love to see how much you've done to promote this because you've really taken it to heart, obviously. And you know, you put this conference together and it's not the first time. And there's so many different growers now, you know, there was hardly anybody doing this in the nineties there. It was really a novelty and, and still it's a novelty, but now there's a thousand times more people doing it from, you know, hardly anybody to, okay, maybe one or two in each region, <laughs> but that was more than there was back then. So it warms my heart to no end to see the aquaponics growing. And especially, you know, you see people really taking the aquaculture part seriously. And even though they may be doing a little more monoculture in the aquaculture and they're growing a certain type of fish for sale and they may just be feeding it pellets and that, hey, it's, they're still doing it, you know. And, you know, on a small scale, you may not be growing enough to raise, you know, fish for eating, but you can have your tanks even separated or floating mats and have some degree of breeding going on of some exotic fish, like the Royal Placostomus. You know, I've got a breeding pair of those. They have the nice gold tracer lines and that. They're $200 a fish and they're not big fish. They're little, little fish, but you know, at $200 a pop, you might as well put up a few aquariums in line. And your plants are the best filtration system for any aquarium. It's just, as long as you 
Oh yeah, the uh, a lot of people don't know the the pleco from a fish called Wanda is a eighteen hundred dollar pleco, uh, the blue eyed, the jet black blue eyed ones. Uh, those plecos, there's so many different varietals. Uh, those Laura carrots that you can, you know, a lot of those are in that two hundred dollar plus range, and it, it's a great point that you bring up, especially you being down in Colombia, you have kind of access to more than most of us uh, uh, at the grill you work with down there. Yeah, it's good to think out of the box a little bit. And of course, you know, raising food's important, but for the hobbyist at home, you're not going to be feeding your family from your aquarium, but you could still have an interesting time and added value from doing some exotics breeding with it, you know, and it's just fun, you know. So I really get, you know, like to encourage people to sort of think outside the box and do what they can to do something unique, you know, if you're doing something different than everybody else. You don't have competitors really you know there's not a an army of people working at that it's pretty specialized it's a real niche and and that's great to see and back then when i was doing it in the 90s the customers that really did well with the systems you know when the best plot in town was 200 bucks an ounce they were getting 300 so they were really happy with it and they enjoyed doing it so it was like almost a cult, you know, it was such a specialized herb that it wasn't widely available. And, it, you know, if, if you knew somebody doing it, they had all their friends had it on lockdown. It wasn't going outside of the small circle, which was kind of the way things had to be back then anyway. So times of prohibition, but uh, yeah, it just blows my mind to see more and more people doing it and not just for cannabis, of course. It's all important. The, the ones I've set up in Colombia now, it's a 3 million liter reservoir, which varies throughout the year, but it's about I think one and a half hectares, which is a substantial reservoir. <laughs> we actually had a little caiman, like a breeding pair of caimans in there. There's turtles, ducks, you know, it's the diversity and growing it, like raising the habitat. When we first built it, there was nothing growing around the sides. Now there's plants growing around the sides. There's a floating raft that holds the pump to take the, because the level changes from the wet season to the dry season. So it's a floating raft where the pump is. And I should have put some pictures together to share about it, but uh, I'll post some on Instagram or something. And the, that pump sends the water up to a, a hill that we built because we're in the plain, so there is no elevation, it's really flat. But we've got a hill built from where the excavation was. And on top of that, we have about a 10 or 20,000 meter reservoir. And then that goes by gravity to the different field blocks. So the water is pumped up there from the pond gradually when the sun's up and it's pumping water up to the holding tank. And then as that needs to, uh, and that's a black tank with black lid to keep stuff from growing in it. And then that just runs to the different lines. We have 24 hectares fenced for psychoactive cultivation under license down there. And then um, pretty much into hectare blocks. And you can open up a valve in a block and it's just flooding it with pond water. So it's pretty neat and basic system, you know, so that's uh, low tech really, but it's a good scale. So it's a lot of fun. I mean, you could uh, go paddle around that reservoir. It's like a big rectangular lake. <laughs> it's pretty fun. It just blows my mind when I go to stand there and look at it and go, I can't believe we have a 3 million liter reservoir and there's fish swimming around and little cocodrillos. Lots of fun. It's certainly a, a big step up from when I first remember you reading about you putting fish waste on hydrogen in those net cups, I think was your, your some of your early overgrow posts. So do you want that's to talk right. about that? Yeah, that's right. Just... Go ahead. Uh, did you want to talk about some of your early experimentation with aquaponics? Well, sure. I think uh, I pretty much give you the first rundown of the very first time I did it, I just used my organic soil mix in pots that had the wicks under it. And those just had, for the mist was just a pump that pumped the water in, the, in through the drainage hole, which was just a hole cut in the bottom. And I actually had the Rubbermaids, I had four Rubbermaids sitting on a Mickey Mouse shower curtain 
and the Mickey Mouse shower curtain was just came off the table and then funneled down into the Rubbermaid reservoir underneath it. And uh, it was just couldn't be more basic. So it would just pump up that hose. The hose was bent and pinched at the end and then just had a few slits in it. So that when the pump came on, it just misted water inside the Rubbermaids. It was really, really basic. And uh, the pots in the top, occasionally I would hand water those little pots in the top because they were just in soil. But once the roots got down, you know, after a few days, pretty much, they would get down to the the wet uh, nylon wicks running up the bottom. And then there was no stopping them. Those, they just grew insanely fast. And it was, you're getting the same growth rates. Because at the same time, I was experimenting with rock wool and, and um, you know, typical hydroponic systems, whether they were buckets or tubes and salt fertilizers. And I was doing them side by side. And I was realizing, there's no difference in growth rate. You know, everybody says, well, you can grow organic, but you don't get the same growth rates, the same yields. It's just not true. If you've got healthy plants, that plant produces what it's going to. And it's, if the difference is in the flavor at the end of the day, and you're not losing anything in growth rates or yield, why wouldn't you grow the one that you like the taste of better, you know? And it was just much, much more interesting to me. So I phased out you know, using salts and hydroponics at the, after a brief experimentation and really never looked back because I, I convinced myself quite quickly there was really no advantage there. And a lot of people thought there was, but those people had never done aquaponics either. And, and you think, you know, everybody's an expert in things they haven't done, it seems, sometimes. So you think, well, yeah, you're telling me oh, it doesn't work as well. You're also telling me you've never tried it. Okay, you know, suit yourself. That's the exact reason why Marty and I started the Growing With Fishes podcast. We got sick and tired of people telling us you couldn't grow aquaponic weed. And meanwhile, we got pictures of stuff that's bigger than anything that they've ever grown. And it's like, and you know this too, the flavor that you get off of aquaponics, I, you really can't match. There's, there's some kind of difference in terpene expression. And um, we actually had a, a wonderful woman on from Canada yesterday, uh, uh, from Aquilitas that was talking to us about, uh, you know, they did quantitative comparisons uh, similar to some of the ones that I did when they're, you know, they're a little more willing to show some of that stuff or aren't un uh, under NDAs like I am, and which I'm sure you run into with some of the stuff that you have as well, or you wish you could share it and you just, you can't for, for, uh, for research reasons for, for now, but uh, it was great to kind of see some of that stuff out in public that we've kind of known for such a long time. Sure. Well, I've never, you know, had any proprietary secrets about it. I was always open to sharing it. That's like when, when the forums first started up, that was definitely, you know, genetics is my focus, but I was always, you know, promoting aquaponics or organic growing in general, because I just said, you know, your weed tastes better. Your weed tastes better. Try it. And it, it, even, you know, in tomatoes and that, there were studies a long time ago in like Growing Edge, I believe it was, that showed the flavonoid comparisons between salt grown and organic grown. And they were finding that there was primary and secondary flavonoids and the secondary flavonoids weren't developing in the hydroponically grown stuff with the salt. So they would get the, you know, your basic tomato flavor when you get that pink water balloon at the Safeway or something compared to your grandma's tomato growing out of the compost of blood red and has a lot more going on in the taste department. So, you know, there's a big difference if you care about taste. If you can't tell the difference, you know, then what does it matter, right? Some people really, some people can't tell the difference. They don't care. They can drink, you know, crappy wine and smoke brickweed and they're happy. That's fine. Each to their own. I always say my life would have been a lot simpler if I was content to drink shitty wine and <laughs> smoke shitty weed. But it's the pursuit of you know, something special that, you know, for some of us, that's really what it's all about. You're drawn into really going for a product of excellence. And then other people that just say, nah, all wine tastes the same or all weed tastes the same. Well, in a way you're lucky, you know, because you're easily satisfied, you know, but for those of us that say, you know, you get spoiled when you have something special and you think, oh yeah, you start measuring everything against that and you think, oh, I can't smoke this crappy hydro, it burns my lips and, you know, it tastes kind of bland anyway. And it's not even just the flavors, although that's hugely important, 
but it's the texture of the smoke. And I found with the aquaponic grown, even compared to organic soil mix often, that the, you know, if you really get a good fade, no matter how you're doing it, even in hydro, you can get a really super fade and get really light textured smoke that's feathery light and airy. And that's something to do with the cultivar as well, because some of them are just inherently more tarry than other ones. And, but the ones that burn light and clean are to me where it's at. I really love that where, and especially in aquaponics, I find I could grow something and cure something so special that the first toke and the last toke almost taste the same. Whereas, you know, when you light a joint in that first toke, might be really nice, but halfway through it's starting to get kind of tarry and there's not a lot of flavor left. It's just kind of heavy smoke and it's not really soft. Whereas if it's light enough, it can maintain that first toke character through the joint, you know, and that's really a mark of quality is when you can still taste that lightness at the end. You see the same thing in cigars where they measure one of the measures of quality in cigars is the lightness of the ash, you know, how light does it burn? And there's really, you know, connoisseurs of cigars, for sure, cigar aficionados. And, you know, lots of people don't care that much, you know, it doesn't matter to them. And maybe they vape it and they don't have the combustion issue that, you know, it's burning harsh, that's, you know, each to their own, you know, as long as you like what you've got, I'm happy for you. You know, I always felt like I had to strive to have something a little bit more elevated. And, it, I, and I always realized when I was sharing it with people, they would always notice the difference pretty much and say, why can't I buy stuff like this? And I said, you have to learn to grow it yourself because the people that are growing it for sale don't care as much. They care that they're getting as many pounds per light as they can get and how well it burns at the end of the day is very, you know, putting it mild to say it's a secondary consideration for them, <laughs> if secondary, right? So bag appeal is not everything. We live in a, a very Instagram world where it's really about the visual appeal and all the hype of the latest cutting out there. And there's lots of great stuff being bred by lots of people, you know. So it's great to see and visual grass is, you know, stunning. I love beautiful looking grass, but I know that not all the glitters is gold. And no matter how good looking it is in a picture, that does not tell you how it burns, you know. And uh, the proof is in the pudding is once it's spun up and, you know, it doesn't matter what the bud looked like by the time it's in the joint, right? So you could, you know, pre-rolls have a nasty name because they're often floor sweepings of, of inferior grass to begin with. And, and the way that they're packed, you know, they're, you know, shake, just over-dried shake stuffed into tubes. There's no rolling actually involved, but um, they're pre-packed shake joints, basically. And, you know, of course, people to look down their nose at them for good reason but as the rolling technology is improving and stickier bud can be used and I think and there are some devices out there now that are starting to actually roll grass in an acceptable fashion and uh, mechanized way so I think we're going to see an improvement in pre-rolled technology or we are seeing improvement pre-rolled technology and that will you know, hide the visual aspect of herb a little bit more so that people aren't just buying it with their eyes, they're buying it with their palate, you know, they smoke it and if it tastes good and it has a nice light texture, that's really what they're after. And that has, you know, it's not to say that aquaponic grass can't be visually appealing, but I'm just saying most people are more focused on looks than taste right now. And I think you're going to see a flip because the people that roll grass are going to be outnumbered by the people that bright pre-rolls once the pre-rolls are good, you know, because it doesn't matter what it looks like anymore. If you can buy a pack of joints that are rolled to perfection and cured well and smoke well, people are inherently lazy and they don't want to roll joints. A lot of people, like some of us enjoy it, sure, that's always going to be the case. But it's, as with cigarettes, you know, the percentage of people that buy 
tailor-made compared to roll their own, it's astronomically different, right? And as the quality of pre-rolls improves, it's going to be far more important how they smoke than how they look, which isn't, you know, anything to do with aquaponic or hydroponic, but it really is a factor in the market, I think. So we'll see what happens there. I think my money's on, you know, that you can do mass produced grass that smokes well, whether it's organic in a field or aquaponic in a greenhouse, that that cannabis is gonna really shine in the pre-rolled markets as well as the flower markets. Like the uh, aquaponic greenhouse grass can look as pretty as anything and it can, you know, really tag all the bases. And there's always going to be people that want to buy that whole flower. And mostly now, I think it's because the pre-rolls just aren't there, generally speaking. But I think you're going to see a shift as the technology has been improving in pre-rolls, that there's going to be a real difference there. And there's a couple aquaponic producers in the Canadian market now, and I haven't even tried their grass, but I've heard it's pretty good. So I, I should try it. I look forward to trying it at some point. Obviously, I just don't get around to buying grass because I have plenty at home and I'm fortunate in that I've been growing my own and stockpiling it for years, but also lots of friends share some with me and I have uh, more than I'll probably finish in my lifetime. So I figure whenever my funeral comes around, I just want them to rip out my stash and everybody can finish it up <laughs> or take it home if they can't. <laughs> because it's definitely accumulating. But it, it, because of that, I haven't gone out and actually bought any grass. I think in Canada, there's been legal weed for a few years now, and I have yet to spend a dollar on it because I have a, a bong bar at home or dab bar. <laughs> it's chock full of jars, and I'll never get to the bottom of it all, I don't think so. Yeah. It's, uh, so uh, so uh, I wanted to ask you one thing or have you talk about one thing uh, uh, while you were on. Um, do you want to tell us a little about your heat treatments for greenhouses? I think it's you've you've had a lot of success with that, and I would love for you to tell people more about it. That's true, and that's a really good thing. And this is there's two things I would like to talk about with the heat. One is for the control of mildew, and if you look at the biology of mildew, it's it dies at I forget exactly the number, but it's supposed to, the top range of its you know, life expectancy is about 34.4 degrees Celsius, I believe. And that's really the bare minimum. So I would aim to hit higher, like even between 38 and 40 degrees Celsius. Even if you do that for five minutes a day, you can lick a mildew problem. And, you know, maybe not if you're in an old house where it's in the walls anyway, you're never going to get rid of it totally, but you can beat it down significantly. And if you're in a fairly clean location, you can totally beat it down just by letting your room in the coldest part of your room. If that's a drafty little corner, you got to measure the temperature there, but that's where you've got to get it, you know, in that high thirties and mildew doesn't survive that. So you can have a heater come on for five minutes in the middle of your light cycle. And that makes a, a world of difference. You know, where in my hot location gardens, such as on the equator, the equator, there's snow on the equator. So it's not like the entire equator is cold, but I've got hot location gardens there. I've never seen mildew there. It's just too warm for it. I have other, you know, fungal issues, but not mildew. So that's really, uh, you know, an easy way for most people to beat mildew that have it. Like in the Pacific Northwest, it's endemic to indoor gardens. And, and most people have always, this sort of segues into the other point about heat in the garden is, you know, especially in the days of the HID lighting, when your main concern was cooling the garden, and at night, we always like to even run it colder because it bring out those purples and, you know, reds, bring out more color in the flowers. But what I've found in a number of sites, and now I'm starting to put together a proper study of it, is the ripening times increase with heat. So I would see in my greenhouse to my indoor in Switzerland that anything that I thought of as an eight-week indoor cultivar would ripen in seven in my greenhouse. And I chopped it up to the light depth hours. I was doing 11 light and 13 dark. 
that wasn't it. I realized later anything I thought of as an eight week clone, then I grow in my hot locations and finishing in six weeks, you know, 45 days and rock solid, like nowhere left to grow. That bud can't get any fatter or tighter. And it's finishing that much faster, like a six week from eight weeks. That's a huge difference. And I, I really, I really figured I have to figure out why this is happening. And I thought, you know, it's not just the daytime temperatures, it's the nighttime temperatures. It doesn't get really cold at night. The coldest it gets there is about 22 at night. Um, so it might be 38 in the day and 22 at night. So it doesn't really chill off enough to slow down. And it, it's accelerated the finishing so much. So I think a lot of people are going to be surprised. But when this study comes out that I'm developing right now, I'm doing controls with some indoor and then greenhouses and then different latitudes. And with corn, you have corn heat units and they add up the degree ripening days. And, you know, so much research has gone into corn. I mean, it's been domesticated for millennia. And anywhere they grow corn, they've got mapped out in bands of heat units. And that determines which varieties of corn they plant. You know, if they get 1,600 heat units or 3,200 heat units, it's a big difference, right? And the same with grapes. You know, you might be able to finish a Pinot Gris where you've got 1,600 heat units, whereas a Syrah, you might need 2,600 heat units. And, and the way they determine the heat units is they add up the highs through the growing season. So if it's, you know, 25 the day you plant, and then, you know, the, high, the, the daily highs over your growing season, that's your heat units, right? So if you're growing from May 1st to October 1st and you add up all the daily highs, that's how they determine corn heat units or the degree growing days, which they apply to the study of vines as well. Now with cannabis, people really haven't done that much in the way of studying this, and it's you know, great to go through with a wide gene bank and put them into these locations. But what I've uh, stunned some researchers I was talking to on Friday in Spain that I'm working with, because the one has an entire career studying corn. And I said, you know what? It, there's a big mistake in the corn heat units. And he's like, what? And I said, it's not the daily highs, it's the mean. Because the night temperatures affect these ripening times as well. And they're not as well. <laughs> like his whole life he's like why did we not see this you know the nighttime temperatures are just as important as the daytime temperatures so if you're not factoring that in you're not getting the whole picture so i'm not only doing this for cannabis but we're revising the way they study ripening times in court so i think this is really a the heat is you know i won't say it's like the new light light's obviously key but, you know, heat is pretty damn important, too. So the temperatures you're growing at, I mean, this summer we had astronomical temperatures in BC. In Lytton, it got to 49.6. In the Okanagan, we got up to 47. And that's hot. I mean, if, you know, people are dying, literally. And some cannabis would get fried, especially if it got a little bit dry if the, the leaves just burned, I saw some plants just fry from missing a watering. But if they stayed watered, most of them were okay, but they needed to stay wet to, to stay, you know, turgid. As soon as they got a little bit limp in that sun, they just turned to yellow paper. They were done. And, you know, we do have, you know, there is climate change. It's really undeniable. You're seeing it, you know, we've seen it in our lifetimes accelerate in a way that you know scares most of us that are paying attention and the heat is a big thing but when there's heat you don't have mildew but it can also accelerate the ripening times i did some light depth this summer and plants i had plants finish at 60 days there were 77 indoor plants you know 77 days indoor and outside they were finishing at 60 but that's because the temperatures were so high that uh, buds were rock hard and absolutely full and done way ahead of their indoor schedule. But those indoor numbers were determined from rooms that were purposefully cooled, you know, and kept at a cool temperature and at nighttime cooled as much as they could in the, you know, 
And I think that's something we've all, we've always strived for cool gardens. And I think we're overlooking a lot of the benefits of a hot one. You can have problems with too much heat too. You, you attract like um, sucking insects like spider mites and that. They thrive in the hot, dry conditions because the more they, they you know, transpired the water that they've sucked out of the plants, the more that they thrive. Whereas the hunting insects, their predators, they need the cooler temperatures to really thrive because they don't do as well in the heat. So the plant suckers really dominate in the heat, but um, <laughs> there's ups and downs, right? But, but we do have to deal with, you know, hotter crops than we've had in the past and there's benefits and there's challenges. So, you know, recognizing the benefits is important as long as you're still mindful of the challenges that go along with that. Oh, <clears throat> so you have any uh, other uh, interesting breeding projects that you've been working on? Well, I know we have a, a little bit more time left here. Uh, uh, I know you've been working on some really interesting types of cannabis and, and that can't be pollinated and other interesting stuff. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You've had some really interesting uh, programs that you've been uh, working with in the last year or two. Sure. There's, uh, the first time I saw sterile females, which are obligate parthenocarpic plants, um, facultative parthenocarpy is sensimilia because you've kept the pollen away from it. But obligate parthenocarpy is a real virgin fruit. It cannot be pollinated. And the first ones I saw were probably in 96 and I hadn't made them, but I found them at, out of seeds and bud. And I, and I was told that, you know, some special bud that I was given, they said, if you find a couple seeds in it growing because they're going to be really special, you're going to in for a treat and I said okay but it was kind of mysterious and I didn't know the grower it was through a mutual friend and when I grew them out I found six seeds and it was great herb to begin with had a really nice sandalwood character um, the first buds I'd seen and then when I grew it out I had six females and this was really nobody was selling feminized seeds at the time so this was one of the earlier people experimenting with them and of the six females I found three of them had no pistols and the three with no pistols would not take pollen. I had them all six in a room full of pollen with other, another pollination round happening with other plants as well. But the three that had no pistols would not take pollen and you could rub it on them. They weren't making seeds. The other three chock full of seeds. And the other interesting part of those plants, which is not just in cannabis, this occurs in other plants that become disobligate parthenocarpy. They root in three or four days, whereas their sisters with pistols would take 10 to 12 days to root. And then when I, the more I started studying the phenomenon, I said, wow, this is really cool. So I've found a few different ways of making them now, and I'm in the process of doing it with a number, you know, all my favorite new selections basically i'm doing that too and they'll be made available to licensed producers because my breeding project right now i can only sell it's a licensed project so i can only distribute clones to licensed producers that are able to import because i have this project in colombia and actually on friday we received our first shipment of clones from Colombia in Spain. So that was uh, a bit of a milestone for us because, you know, when could we export clones legally? You know, it was great to see. And we were, they were unrooted clones and we have a client in Spain that had ordered them. So we got the phytosanitary certificates and that, and these are not, these were not sterile females, these are just regular females. But um, now that we've had that first shipment go through, in the new year, I'm going to start selling the, the sterile females or infertile females, if you prefer, um, under license. And pretty much anything you can think of, like any flavor out there you can think of, I've probably got it in the collection and I'm found stunning versions of it, which I'm making sterile versions of. I have about 24 breeding chambers that I'm using to 
make these sterile batches. And the way you can make them easiest at home is through repeated back crossings of feminized. So not back crossing to the original mother, but the feminized offspring, if you feminize them again and return them to the first feminized generation, you'll start making your own infertile females. So you can have a lot of fun with it too, because these plants root so quickly, but you know, they can never make seed. And I think this is going to be in the SOPs for every commercial producer that they have to use them in the near future, because I've seen, you know, not just me, but it's been seen accidental pollinations or even just a little bit in a lot of commercial producers. You know, it's, it's embarrassing really, but even if, if you get one seed in an eighth, that's still a fail, you know? And they're going, well, it's just one seed in an eighth. It's like, no, you shouldn't have any seeds in your pot. And in Canada has been much worse than that. There's been pre-rolls sold from big companies that were 50% seed by weight. You know, what do you call that? A firecracker? Like, come on. That's that's just so unacceptable. And it's a, a hard fail. And to think that they, you know, how that passed any sort of quality control is beyond me, that you could have a joint that's 50% seeds by weight. And there's producers in Canada that have done that repeatedly on different batches. And you think, how is that possible? And then even the guys that are considered the better producers there that are selling $70 eights, people are still getting a seed or two. And there's been so much feminizing in the seed company world that, you know, hermaphrodism has become a little more tolerated than I would ever tolerate. I, I see a hermaphrodite and I kill it. You know, I just can't stand things. And they think, that's a great plant, too bad hermaphrodite, gone, you know? And sure, you could gene edit it or figure out a way around it, and you know, supposedly. But why bother? You know, there's so much better stuff to work with that's not hermaphrodite. Just kill hermaphrodites, people. You know, there's there's no excuse to keep propagating hermaphrodites. And if you start making feminized seeds with hermaphrodites, then you're just making more hermaphrodites. So it's a <laughs> it's an ongoing problem that you know a long time ago it wasn't, you know. Sensimilia meant something, and now it's kind of like, well, it's 99% sense, <laughs> not good enough. You know, so I think that the, the standard operating procedures will be rewritten by the big producers, that there is no excuse for having seeds in your sensimilia. If you're selling sensimilia, it can't have a single seed in it, you know? So the, the infertile females are going to be a game changer. I'm really sure of that. And the fact that they root faster is just a bonus. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, how do people find out more about you and uh, and what you've been doing uh, in the future? Well, I will have to start updating breedersteve.com, which I've been pretty bad about, but I will start uh, putting a bit more information up there and some more updates about the various ongoing projects. Um, really having fun with expansion. I've got one in the middle of Thailand right now that's up and licensed. I haven't set foot in it yet because of this damn pandemic, but I'll be heading over there in the new year and give you some updates on that. And I'm starting one in Australia as well. And in uh, the Columbia one is expanding into more locations in different climates around Colombia, as well as Peru. And now I have about five in Spain and about 16 clients in Spain that I'm visiting. I'm, I'm over here right now on a under just under two week trip and I'm seeing a lot of locations. So th this was uh, my one slow day and I went for a walk in the park today and then went and had a squid sandwich for lunch, you know, the Boca Dios de Calamares, the Madrid classic with a little beer for lunch. And then tomorrow I'm off to Barcelona and then Valencia the next day and right down the coast to Malaga and then up through Granada, Albacete, and back to Madrid. So it's really a, a loop around Spain for this for these two weeks while I'm here. It's, it's very, very busy. I haven't had time to roll a joint, honestly, since I've been here. <laughs> it's been crazy. So I've been getting picked up at 7.30 in the morning and coming back to my hotel at 2, 2.30 in the morning after late dinners, and just nonstop. But I'm really excited. We're getting, we got a new office we're setting up in Madrid. And, um, 
So that's a new location to manage the European projects from. We've got one starting in the UK as well, which is really at the starting phases, but applications are going in. That's a greenhouse plus field stuff. So just keeping busy, man. I'm really uh, just going full tilt right now. That's for sure. I hope you have a great rest of your conference. I can see that my time is up and I know you're on a tight schedule and I can't think anything else to tell you. So have a great day, guys. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Always a pleasure and uh, uh, definitely looking forward to hearing what you're uh, you're doing in the future. Uh, thanks a lot so much. The lampshade on my head. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks. Take care. Bye.